Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Course. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter called The Kaka, which is for paying subscribers. Although today I'm opening this one up to the public early, thanks to the support of paying subscribers. This one's in the public interest around a key area of water infrastructure. Water infrastructure is the limiting factor in our ability to respond to our housing unaffordability and our climate change issues. And on top of that, trying to reduce particularly child poverty. That's why Three Waters, how we pay for infrastructure, how we plan for infrastructure is so important. You cannot build a house unless it is connected to some sort of water pipes. So to remove wastewater, to receive drinking water, and to try and avoid some of the stormwater causing all sorts of grief, as we've seen in recent weeks. For the last two decades, New Zealand's been growing its population at between 1.5% and 2%. This is not something we planned or expected or certainly invested for. It means we have an infrastructure deficit of around about $100 billion, according to the Infrastructure Commission. And even if we were to continue to grow our population at less than half that rate, which is what StatsNZ is forecasting, and we simply adopt those StatsNZ forecasts for any sort of national or local plans, even with that lower population growth, we'd need to invest another $100 billion dollars just to keep up. That's $200 billion worth of investment. Now that's actually not far away from the number estimated by the government when it looked at the whole issue of three waters. Remember, three waters is drinking water, wastewater, so sewage, and stormwater. The government worked out, thanks to some research by uh, a Scottish water agency, who'd been brought in to have a look, that it could cost upwards of $180 billion to repair and build the water infrastructure needed for the next 50 to 60 years. The government then responded by uh, proposing a way of shifting, taking, appropriating, depending on your point of view, those water assets into four brand new bodies that were designed to be balanced sheep sheet separated. Now this is important, this idea of balance sheet separation, because the theory is if these assets were in a brand new vehicle, some sort of water entity, that wasn't necessarily owned by councils or the government, it would be able to uh, put water charges onto these assets and then use the revenues from those charges to pay for new debt that would be raised that somehow would be separate from the central government or the local government. The idea being that this means you can magically build the infrastructure that you need and not have the debt to be responsible for. Now this is actually fiction because ratings agencies and investors assume that if any one of these vehicles got into trouble, then either the central or the local government and in the New Zealand context, it's mostly central government, would intervene and to protect those assets and make sure they kept running and make sure that 
investors didn't lose their money. And uh, this means that, in effect, these assets still belong to the central government anyway. The only difference is that when a bond investor buys these bonds, i.e. lends the money to the new vehicle, it wants an extra little margin to account for the vague prospect that maybe the government wouldn't uh, step in and guarantee that asset. Uh, and that costs around 50 to 60 basis points normally. Now the reason for this was when Three Waters was being dreamt up, the government had a policy, and this is when I say government, I'm saying both Labour and national government had policies, that they would try to keep gross government debt below a ceiling of about 20% of GDP. However, that measure of gross government debt doesn't include so-called off-balance sheet vehicles. Now, they can include things such as, at one point, Kainga Ora, which was allowed under firstly the national government and then expanded under Labour to borrow on its own under its own steam, if you like. So that's why there's this aim for off-balance sheet vehicles to pretend to ourselves and to voters that somehow the debt is not ours when actually ratings agencies and bond investors believe it is and simply charge an extra sum for the very remote prospect that it isn't. Now that's quite expensive, that 50 to 60 basis points over a long period, and will mount up to billions of dollars simply to protect a political fudge. So Three Waters was pushed ahead, and unfortunately it got tied up into the various groundswell debates in the wake of the mandates in 2021 and became a, a, a type of lightning rod for opponents of centralisation, the government, everything that was woke, and has become politically unpopular. So the government is trying to disassociate itself from the name Three Waters at least, but wants to keep these reforms in place. The legislation has already gone through, the Three Waters legislation, and the four new water entities are in the process of being set up. So people have been employed, uh, uh, branding specialists have come up with logos, there is money already being spent. However, because it's politically uh, unpopular, National have come out uh, in the last couple of days, particularly on Sunday, with a pledge to repeal Three Waters and to disestablish the four new entities that are already being set up. So, that's interesting. So what is National going to do instead to solve these issues? Well, we now have a more detailed policy from National, which I link to in the uh, podcast uh, in the email with the podcast. And what it says is that National will allow the councils to set up their own off-balance sheet vehicles voluntarily, but not with any co-governance requirements. They can choose that if they want. And that there would be a centralised regulator within the Commerce Commission designed to assess whether the council's plans for growth of infrastructure assets are enough to cope with uh, what is required and to ensure that the quality of the, particularly the drinking water, but obviously the, the dangers of wastewater getting onto beaches and then stormwater <laughs> creating the dramas that we had in the last couple of months, 
that councils do the right thing. The problem here, of course, is that this is all about having to come up with a couple of hundred billion dollars in the next 20, 30 years if we're going to cope with the population growth that we're actually going to have. And by the way, that's likely to be higher than the half percent or so that StatsNZ and the Infrastructure Commission have assumed. By the way, that assumption is based on a survey of people at the depths of the uh, pandemics and asked them when we had no migration how much migration they expected over the coming years and they decided that the median for that was 25,000 per year. By the way, that is significantly lower than what we've got even now after uh, six or seven months of having the border open and it's significantly lower than the average over the last 20 years or so. Be that as it may, someone has to come up with that money somehow and it has to be paid for. The most efficient way to do this is for the central government, given it is the only one who benefits from GST and income tax growth, to actually borrow the money and use it to pay for the infrastructure and also to plan for the real level of population growth that we're likely to have. Because remember, both political parties are happy to pull the migration levers when they need to get re-elected, but they do it without having any sort of policy or limits or even a discussion with the public about what this fast population growth means. So, National have said, we will continue with the status quo in terms of the government not helping councils with extra borrowing, we will expect the councils themselves to do borrowing if they choose to keep the assets or these off-balance sheet vehicles to do the borrowing. Again, continuing with the fiction that somehow it's neither the central government's debt or the local government's debt. It also effectively pushes down to council level those politically difficult decisions about water charges because you really cannot uh, deal with the infrastructure needs of water without charging for the use of those pipes, both for drinking water, storm water, and wastewater. And that is quite difficult for councils to get through. There aren't that many councils who have managed to do it under their own steam. At the moment, uh, Christchurch is just gingerly trying a few things. Auckland did it, but only after the creation of the super city was mandated or forced through from the central uh, government under the national previous national government. And we also saw uh, uh, the likes of Tauranga uh, introduce water charges, but again, only with commissioners there. So it's very difficult for councils and for councillors and mayors who want to get re-elected to campaign on either higher rates to cope with higher debt or to say uh, we will introduce water charges. The other aspect here, of course, is congestion charges, which have been seen by the Infrastructure Commission and both sets of politicians when they're not creating their manifestos to say that we should have congestion charges to help both manage demand, i.e. So reduce the need for new infrastructure, but also pay for new infrastructure directly. Everyone says they want to impose congestion charges until they get anywhere near an election. So, um, we have this essentially combined set of magical thinking where both national and labor say we can have it all we can have the water infrastructure we need and deserve we can have 
the affordable housing we need and deserve, we can have the climate emissions reduction we need and reserve, and somehow we can have it with low taxes and low debt. And the solution often is proposed as some sort of public-private partnership, some sort of off-balance sheet vehicle, which means that neither somehow taxpayers or ratepayers will have to pay for it, and that magically it somehow happens in a, a clouded area in the middle. Well, we know that um, this is a fiction that the people who actually do the investing, the investors, the bond investors, and the ones who advise them, the ratings agencies, see as fiction, and the non-fiction is that we pay for that. And eventually, uh, if we're going to deal with this, we're going to have to pay for it in some way. The most efficient way to do it is through taxes, congestion charges, and higher public debt. The other alternative is simply not to build the infrastructure, and that's the one we've chosen over the last 20 or 30 years. That's why we have a $100 billion infrastructure deficit. It also means we've chosen not to have the proper debates about population growth. So we accidentally, on purpose, uh, allow surges of population through migration because it's great for keeping wages under control, for uh, providing the cheap labour that many small and large businesses need, and because it, it helps keep pressure upwards on land prices. And this is the key thing here. This set of magical thinking works perfectly for median voting residential landowners, often owner-occupiers, because they get the best of all the worlds. They get low taxes, low rates, they get low interest rates because remember when you have lots of migrants working that keeps wage inflation low and it also means that you have plenty of employment growth, plenty of GST and income growth which keeps budget deficits low and which keeps interest rates low. That however means, and this is a, this is a feature of the system not a bug, that residential land prices keep increasing fast because you've got pressure from population growth and of course because you've starved local and central government of the taxes and debt they need to pay for the infrastructure you don't have enough uh, available residential land to supply the extra demand so you get a big increase in residential land values. Why does that matter? Because it's the only way in New Zealand you can get leveraged tax-free gains that are relatively low risk and they are spectacular. We know this. The national accounts show that our residential land values are worth more than $1.2 trillion and that the five to $600 billion worth of gains that we've seen in the last 20 years have all come tax-free. So when you set up your economy and your personal finances to take advantage of that a huge gap in our tax system in which the capital gains on residential land are not taxed or any other capital gains for that matter but it's the residential land capital gains that really matter for particularly owner occupiers then it makes sense to continue to starve your infrastructure. The end result of course is various issues uh, people dying of uh, unclean water uh, um, or floods or um, those people who don't have parents who already own residential property struggling to get into the market. And then, of course, there are the kids of the parents who own the residential property coming to the parents asking for deposits to get into that market. 
So how do we break the logjam here of this magical thinking? What's going to force it to change? Because remember, both parties go straight for the median voting homeowner in the suburbs who quite likes this current situation. What would change it? Because often when you have these sorts of pressures that are, in the end, unsustainable, eventually there are escape valves and some external pressure forces political change. Sometimes it might come in the form of crisis or some sort of movement of the public or simply a shift in public sentiment overwhelms the status quo. Occasionally we get that, although it's increasingly difficult under MMP. So how would this change? Well, those people who would need to change their minds about higher taxes and higher debt and more infrastructure spending and actually planning for population growth would need to see the status quo is not working for them in some way. And we are starting to see bits and pieces of this. For example, you're quite happy with the uh, massive leveraged tax-free gains on residential property, particularly the one you live in, but it starts to get difficult when kids turn up and ask for deposits. And it starts to get difficult too when you have to think about the family dynamics of lending large chunks of money to your kids or guaranteeing their loans, or in, or in particular, <laughs> their kids' partners. So um, that's a problem. The other problem, of course, is that when the kids decide to leave, and this is not just the uh, kids of those who own, but the kids of those who don't own, when they leave the country, because that's the only way to get ahead, where they feel like they can have a stake in a society, where they can uh, grow their own wealth, and that they can um, have a, a stable and affordable life, They go somewhere with higher incomes and uh, relatively lower housing costs, at least relative to their disposable incomes. And right now that's Australia. The one limit to that plan has been, of course, the Australian approach to New Zealanders living in Australia, which is to starve them of the full residency rights, particularly around uh, health and education costs, and particular for the kids that people have there. Now that may be about to change, in part because the new Labour government there wants to Uh, make it easier for New Zealanders to come and more attractive for them to stay and potentially give them the full and fast residency rights of actual rural Australians. That is um, one of the escape valves in this scenario. Uh, The other one is that at some point uh, uh, the growing costs in terms of justice, health and education of a essentially those people who can't afford to leave. So they might not have the skills or the resources to jump on a plane to Australia and are locked into a a precarious existence of high rents relative to their disposable income, all sorts of issues with health, with education and with justice system costs that are eventually borne by those people who pay PAYE and GST. And if um, the tax system remains relatively lowly taxed, eventually this is going to put enormous pressure on the government's finances and eventually either push up interest rates as financial markets lose faith in this model, that's some time away yet, or uh, the voters themselves realise that it's not sustainable for them to continue to have to pay for more and more prisons, more and more hospitals for dealing with entrenched and growing class of poverty-stricken renters. That's the overall picture here behind both National and Labour pursuing a magical thinking approach on water infrastructure. 
which National has confirmed with its more detailed proposal for repealing and replacing Three Waters and maintaining the status quo, particularly in how things are funded. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a publicly available podcast uh, that has gone out with my email newsletter, The Kaka, on today, Monday the 27th of February. Uh, it's a bit of a special one that I'd like to thank paying subscribers to The Kaka for doing and encourage all those who are still free subscribers to convert to paying subscribers. Nā mihi nui.